0: still hanging as relapse sums up
1: Welcome to episode 417 of the Thinking Poker Podcast. From Catonsville, Maryland, I am
2: Andrew Brokus. And from Las Vegas, Nevada, I'm Carlos Welch. Uh,
1: I need to thank Carlos and to uh, thank all of our listeners off the bat, because uh, this, at least as I initially conceived it, was going to be kind of a self-indulgent Episode. Uh, it was a person that I was very interested in interviewing. And my hope was that it would be interesting to Carlos. It would be interesting to listeners. Um, and after doing the interview, I was like, there's no way people aren't going to like this. Um, it is not really poker related. Um, it is related to my life and some things I was doing in my life when I was first getting started in poker. Uh, but I think that other than that, it's a amazing interview. I mean, well, I'll introduce the guest in a moment. But yeah, I, I thought she was just fantastic.
2: Yeah, I was completely blown away by her. Yeah, I was already interested in the topic, but like you, it's probably not a topic that the average listener is interested in. But she was so um, compelling that I think a lot of people who were not interested in that topic will be interested in just her as the superstar that she is. <laughs> and anything she says, she, she will make you interested in her topic if, if you're interested in her.
1: Yeah. And so th- this this mystery guest is uh, Kimberly Willingham, who is the executive director of the Boston Debate League, which is in some sense a job that I once had. And I say in some sense because I was the founder of, of the league. This is the thing that I started um, basically straight out of college. Uh, so I graduated college in 2004 and we had a partial debate season in 2005. So like the the league started very quickly. Um, Once I I moved to Boston after I graduated from college, Um, I was a very serious uh, debate competitor in high school, to some degree in college, although I sort of my own debating faded in college because I started working with the Chicago Debate League, which was a similar organization to the one that I ultimately started. Um, and they were working in the Chicago public schools, running a competitive after-school debate league, similar to the competitive debate that um that I did. And I really enjoyed working with them. It was a great experience for me. And I also felt like it was a really good activity for the students and they were getting a lot out of it. It was just a really valuable thing. Uh, and as it happened, a woman who... I knew from collegiate debate had just moved to Boston at the same time that I did. And so she and I actually started this league together. Um, she left Boston not too long after that. So I kind of ended up, you know, the next couple of years, it was it was just me putting it together along with, you know, like the coaches and, and things like that. Um, so I kind of like got this league off the ground. It was still pretty small by the time that I that I left, but My initial idea, you know, when I graduated from college, I had a philosophy degree. It was not on my radar that poker was like a thing that a person could do to (laughs) earn a living. Uh, And it kind of wasn't at that time. I mean, there were not very many professional poker players in 2004. This is like right as the internet poker boom is like taking off. It's uh, a year after Chris Moneymaker won the the World Series of Poker. Uh, So it really was just becoming viable as, as a profession for more than a handful of people. But I was interested in poker already, and I was making a little bit of money playing online poker. And my objective really was to make ends meet playing online poker while I started this Boston Debate League thing. And the pie in the sky dream was if it really takes off and it it actually becomes something that can get investment from the nonprofit sector and or from the Boston public schools, that running the league could be a full-time job. Me and that, like, so that was my hope was just to kind of play poker long enough to get this thing off the ground. And then ultimately, running the league would be my job. And that happened uh, against the odds (laughs) that it did actually, the, the league did actually grow to the point where um, we had the the superintendent of the Boston Public Schools came to an event, she was impressed. We had a bunch of discussion and negotiation with her and like ultimately the Boston Public Schools agreed to invest like a pretty significant sum of money in the league. We had some investment from the nonprofit sector and those things feed each other, right? Like once the nonprofit sector sees that BPS is investing in it, then they're a lot more willing to invest in it and vice versa. So you're kind of like going back and forth with a lot of potential stakeholders. Um, But we did actually get it to the point where we were going to be able to um, pay an executive director. Uh, And this was 2009, which is also when I had my deepest run in the (laughs) WSAP main event. And I was at that point making more money from poker than I had ever imagined was going to be possible. And I had the idea that, you know, maybe I should just focus on poker instead. And like, I'm not necessarily the best person to actually run this league. I mean, I got it started and I was passionate about it, but I was not an educator, you know. I I was just a person who was passionate about debate, and it might be possible to hire someone who is who is better qualified, uh, which is ultimately what we ended up doing. Um, we hired a person named Steve, uh, who's he initially hired this woman Kim um, for for a different role. Uh, there was a third executive director after Steve, and then Kim was was promoted internally to where she's now been the executive director of this league for about two years. And that's a roundabout way of saying that like, What I was doing when I was the executive director was almost unrecognizable from what Kim is doing now, and I think part of why I stepped away from being the executive director was I really wanted to be doing programming stuff, like I wanted to be working with students and teaching debate, and that's not actually what the executive director does. Like she has uh, employees who who do that part, and she's closer to being like a a CEO, you know, like not that she's unfamiliar, and in fact she's extremely familiar (laughs) and extremely passionate about the work that the organization does. But I don't think she's doing a lot of like sitting down and um, teaching debate to to students. So I think my job title may have been the same as hers, but the actual day to day work that she is doing is a lot more impressive than what I was doing. And the results are much more impressive as well. So we'll talk some to her about what the league looks like now, but it is. By some measures, a hundred times larger than it was at the time <laughs> um, that I that I was running it. You know, she's now got a staff of like probably close to 10 people, multi-million dollar budget. You know, this this is a very serious uh organization that's doing very good work in the Boston Public Schools. And it's uh, something that's very close to my heart um, that I'm still very invested in. Some people have been longtime listeners to this podcast, will know about my background with the league. And um, yeah, this is really just a person that I wanted an excuse to interview her. I think she's interesting. Um, I hope that people here will find her interesting as well. And I'm very glad to hear that you did, Carlos.
2: Yeah. It's like, That was a bonus. The fact that she's such a rock star was a bonus. And you basically just laid out the hook for me uh, of why someone would listen to this episode. It's like, if you are interested in poker strategy or poker in general, and you just stumbled across this podcast and you don't really know Andrew, then this episode might confuse you. (laughs) But for those of us who've been around from the beginning, and we know Andrew's history and debate, not just in debate, but you know, Andrew's history with the Boston Debate League, given that he started it, is like, if you are a fan of Andrew, it's kind of like, it's like watching Andrew's kids grow up. And like Andrew's kid has grown up and now is like an absolute rock star in the debate world is like at one point we um, this is kind of a spoiler alert. But at one point we mentioned like the number of kids she had at one time was like, like, uh, like surprising for y- you to even hear. And it was like competing with some of the the biggest um, debate leagues in the, in the country. Like that was awesome for me to hear, knowing that, you know, you started this thing. So for the people who are listening because they're Andrew fans, as opposed to just poker fans in general, they'll want to hear the story of how, you know, your baby grew up.
1: Yeah, you know, the um, policy and she does a really nice job of of explaining what debate is. So I don't want to like take that. I, I'd rather people hear heard her explanation. But uh, the, this this particular form of, of debate, policy debate, um, I, I think is is not in a super healthy place nationwide. It has some issues with accessibility. It's there's often a, like a pretty high barrier to entry. I, I think some things have been done to try to bring this down some, but like most of the schools that dominate in this are like really elite private schools, or they're public schools that are might as well be private schools. You know, they're in some of the most right. expensive school districts in in the country. um They're just they're they're all extremely well funded schools, um, and there are a lot of ways that by spending more money, you can be more competitive at, at debate. And it is, I mean, there are good reasons, like the, the winners of the national championship debate tournaments, like that's virtually a free ticket and not free. I mean, maybe free, like you, I mean, you could get a lot of debate scholarships off of this, but you know, you're also going to get admitted to basically any college that you apply to. Like that's an extremely prestigious thing to be, um, you know, very competitive at like the the national level in, in debate. So, there are good reasons why it matters to people to, to be very good at this. And there are a lot of wealthy people who are investing a lot of money in you know, getting their, their kids to, to be good at this. And so, there are like very expensive debate camps that um, that you can go to, you know, like spend your entire summer. I don't know. The tuition at these things now is probably like $12,000, $15,000 for a summer, I would guess. Um, and just sort of like immersed in, in debate. And you have a bunch of like college debaters who are teaching and coaching you. And it just, you know, Th- this is what the the national debate circuit looks like in in general and it's kind of unhealthy in the sense that most people can't compete with that so you know it's it's kind of a bunch of like elite schools competing with another and then one with one another and then like occasional scrappier smaller schools like trying to get it was just kind of where i was in, in high school i like to say that i was like my, my partner and i were kind of the, the best team that didn't go to one of these elite camps which really put a cap on on how good we were we could be like we were probably I think we we're certainly like top 100 in the country and no, I no, may not certainly but like in the neighborhood of like top 100 in the country so like quite good but not not competing at a really elite level like not not at the at the, the very highest echelons you had to be going to expensive debate camps to do that participation in policy debate generally in, in that national circuit has gone down a lot um it was already on its way down at the time that, that I was competing for that reason it's just there are very few schools that can really manage to compete at that level and then what the urban debate leagues have done is kind of just started doing their own thing where you know now you can go to probably six tournaments in boston without ever leaving the city of boston um and you're competing against other boston public schools some of them are you know more elite than than others but Nothing on the scale of you know trying to compete against like the top private schools in in the country or something. So it, it's a much more like democratic way of of participating in debate. And I think that the not just the Boston Debate League, but like different urban debate leagues in the country are probably some of the healthiest uh, debate leagues in in the country. And I think have have not had the same problems of just sort of being ground down by elitism that the national circuit generally has had. Right. Um so I, I did want to ask you, Carlos, because uh, we're going to hear an, an insider's description of debate from Kimberly, and, and she does a fantastic job of, of explaining that and explaining what the Boston Debate League does. But uh you actually, after years of hearing me talk about debate, had a chance to watch a debate. And this is something we talked some to Kim about as well. but the uh, the 2021 debate season, was fully online, right? That was like the height of the pandemic. Schools were closed, uh, and and they ran an entire debate season online. All the debates were online. The students were at their own homes, uh, judges were at their own homes, and you know everyone's on uh, sort of a Zoom equivalent, uh, trying to trying to make these debates work. But what that meant was that I didn't need to be in Boston. I could still volunteer, and so I was actually judging the city championship debate, the varsity city championship round. So this is like the most elite debate round in. The city of Boston in 2021, and it was open to spectators, so you were actually able to uh, get on and observe some of this debate. And I'm curious to hear, you know, what what were your takeaways from it? You know, given whatever you had heard me say about debate or whatever, like preconceptions about debate mm-hmm. you had. What, what did you think of of the best debaters in the city of Boston?
2: Well, the first thing you did was scare me by teaching me what spreading was, which is like the fast talking that the debaters do. And I was thinking that, you know, I'm not going to catch a word of this, man. But then I noticed that, you know, my years as a uh, hip hop listener prepared me for (laughs) listening to people talk really fast. And so I was able to keep up with the arguments uh, more so than I thought I would. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed You know, hearing them go back and forth and, um, you know, do the arguments and like you prepared me to understand the the difference between like the AF and I forget the other one now. Affirmative negative. Yeah. Yeah. So the AF is the affirmative and uh, one side of the debate and the negative is the other. Yeah. I really enjoyed it, especially it was a good distraction for me because this is at a time when I needed to put a new engine in my (laughs) Prius. And I was dropping my car off at a shop in San Diego. And then I was on a city bus when I was like listening to this debate um, on my iPad. And like, so those are like some fun memories for me. Like I can remember like certain stops I was at when I heard like an argument or like something that really um, was impactful for me that, you know, listening to kids like these were like, how old were these kids? Were these,
1: they were mostly seniors. So like, 16 to 18.
2: Yeah. So like listening to 16 to 18 year olds talk about like some pretty like big like adult topics was kind of like mind blowing for me because I can remember how I was at that age and I felt like I was pretty mature. And then like, you know, generally now I've become an old man and my idea of like like when I see 16 to 18 year olds now, I think about how they're so much less mature than (laughs) we were. And to know that these kids you know, in this era, talking about things that I wasn't talking about when I was at that age was kind of like refreshing.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm glad to hear you say. That. I, I do think the students are by far the best salespeople for for the league. It's I mean, and these were the most impressive students in in the league. But even people who are new to it and they're they're not polished debaters and they're they're kind of up there stamming and stuttering and, and they're not sure what to say. I think even there, it's still kind of inspiring. Just the the interest and the willingness to do that. Like in some ways, that's harder than being a, like once you're a good debater and you're and you're good at it it's not or like i i at least was not generally nervous during debates once i was good at it but when i was new to it and i didn't really know what i was supposed to doing and i just had to kind of like get up and talk about a thing that i didn't really understand like that's much harder to do i think than, yeah. than to be good at debate so yeah i i find the students across the board inspiring but certainly you know the, the ones who are the the best in in the city are quite good. Uh, the thing that you mentioned about them being fast I, I don't want to uh pour too much water on your fire. I don't know what my analogy is here yeah. but uh, <laughs> they, they were not they were not particularly fast I mean they they were definitely talking faster than conversational speed but uh, there are debaters who talk way faster than that
2: okay so Bring this so you scared me like, oh this isn't as bad as Andrew said and it yeah, I, out, I
1: like, didn't I didn't know how fast they were going to be uh, I I think I'm probably at a point where now I couldn't follow super fast I'm a little out of practice so one one thing that like arguably makes debate sort of toxic is um there's there are time limits on the speeches and so game theory and action right some people decided <laughs> well if I only have a certain amount of time to talk if I talk faster I can say more things and so you'll sometimes it's like you could go if if you wanted to see this you could like go on youtube and google like debaters talking fast or or something and um you would you would find examples of people just like they they talk very quickly and they also breathe in a weird way to like enable them to talk more quickly and if you have a judge who is a former debater as many judges are they'll know how to understand this and so you essentially like these debates can be good like it looks Bonker. I mean, this is one of the hardest things about selling the league was you kind of had to be <laughs> careful about like, what am I going to let the superintendent see? Like, <laughs> Do right. I want to like take her into a room where uh, there's just like these students, uh, it's called spreading, like talking super fast. But I, I think that once you are initiated into it, there is actually value to it. Like if you have a, a room where everyone can understand what's going on, um, both of the debaters know how to talk fast. The judge knows how to listen to a, a round that's going very fast. Like you are just getting more content. You know, like you're just, it's, I mean, it's kind of like poker. You're playing uh, fast fold games and a person who is not initiated to poker sees someone playing like four tables of Zoom at once or, you know, 16 tables of tournaments or whatever at once. And they're like, that's insane. No one could do that. But like, once you actually learn how to do it, like you can do it, it's not even necessarily super hard and you are going to like get more volume in and get better faster as a result of doing that. So I, I don't think that that's like intrinsically toxic, but it is one of the things that really raises the bar for for entry. Um, that was not something that I like deliberately exposed to Students too, when I was teaching them debate. But you know, over time, like they go to competitions outside of the league and whatever else, and they see people doing that, and then they maybe want to experiment with it for themselves. So I really had no idea what to expect in terms of how fast these particular students were were going to speak. And there's been some pushback against that in the in the debate community as well. So I think there's like mixed opinions among uh, serious debaters of like whether that's something that that debaters should be doing, right? Yeah, that's probably plenty of introduction there. (laughs) Uh, Is is there anything more that you think we should tell people to prepare them for this interview?
2: I will say this debate, you have opened my eyes to how debate kind of impacts these kids' lives. And uh, we've had more testimony of that from a past guest, uh, Josh Nixon. Of course, yeah. (laughs) Who was one of your debaters. So for the people who um, listen, you've seen examples of like, you know, how this has impacted people's lives. So at the end, when um Kim um gives the uh pitch for donations, uh you should definitely consider that. I decided that I would donate based on you know Kim's pitch, and I just wanted to reiterate how important that is and how effective debate is at impacting these kids' lives. So if you um, feel led to do so, you should definitely. Uh, give a donation to the Boston Debate League.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. I, I would certainly appreciate it personally. It's still something that that I care a lot about. And if you enjoy this this podcast, you enjoy me hearing me talk about poker or enjoy the things that I write about poker, feel like you benefit from that or whatever. Um, debate really is, is owing for a lot of that. Like a lot of how I think about poker is a product of having participated in debate. So I'm always talking about what are the arguments for this? What are the arguments against mm-hmm. this? Comparing two options and saying, okay, what are the what are the pluses and minuses of this? What is this one? You know, is, is there a slightly better way of, of doing that? These are all skills that I acquired through debate. Um, and it's also the case that if I didn't at least believe it was possible, that there could be someone like Kim who would be able to take over the league and, and keep it going and that was my biggest concern is I'm certainly the people who are qualified to run it but like is there someone else who's going to care about it the way that right. I did and that's the most there's there's a lot that's impressive about about Kim but that was one of the most important things to me to see was to say like oh this is a person who's really like has taken ownership of this um and is I care. I'm, at this point, I'm sure it cares more about it than I do, <laughs> but, you know, that, that was the hope is sort of like, how do you find someone who's going to if, if they didn't start the thing, how are they ever going to be as passionate about it as as you are? But you can tell that you know she's found ways to do, um, take it in directions that are important to her and, and that she thinks is, is what's best for the students. And I would trust her to know that even better than, than I do. Uh, but where I'm going with all that is the existence of um, Kim and, and other people like Kim is what has enabled me to be in the poker world creating content like this for you uh that there are other people out there doing this thing that I cared about and at some point felt obliged to be doing myself yes so before we get on to the interview uh we can have a little strategy discussion for you just so there's something for the poker purists
0: out there <laughs>
1: uh and since this is already a self-indulgent episode let's go ahead and talk about a hand that I played yes. Okay, this hand is from a $600 tournament on America's Card Room. Technically, it's part of their uh, OSS series, but a lot of it, especially on Sundays, those tournaments are just like rebranded versions of tournaments that they already have. So this is like their usual $600 Sunday high roller. Um, Gets a field of like 1,000-ish players. We are in the shallow money right now. I think I have like a 2.3 buy-in cash locked up there's a hundred ish players remaining in the field so not particularly close to the final table i am under the gun one with 20 big blinds i have ace king offsuit and i open for a minimum raise i assume pretty uncontroversial so far yes now middle position Uh, Cold Calls the Rays. This was not a person that I recognized. This was an American that I had not previously seen, which, I mean, my assumption isn't that they're going to be like a huge fish, but they probably are going to be, you know, not a professional player, not like someone who's playing regular. Like I, I do. There are a lot of people in ACR that I do run into regularly, and that I recognize. And this was not one of them, and they were an American. So I think this is probably not like an elite player making a super strong early position call, but it's not necessarily a forty forty percent VPIP fish either. Right. Um. They call off of a twenty-four big blind stack, and then the button, who has a thirty-four big blind stack. Calls, Um, I'm deliberately not gonna give you a read on the button, Uh, button calls. So I've I've raised, I've been called by two players that position on me, one in early position, one on the button, blinds fold. And we go to the flop, there's 8.3 big blinds in the pot, 18 remaining in my stack, both of these players cover me. The flop is king of hearts, 10 of spades, six of spades. I have ace king with the ace of spades. So I'm out of position to both of these players, should I bet?
2: Your read on the American is confusing. <laughs> uh, not confusing, but it's like it's balanced. <laughs> uh, if you just say an unknown American, I was like, fish, bet. Uh, but then you say, okay, he's not like, because to me, unknown American might be a forty-v pipper. 40 well, I guess I mean I, I don't
1: I don't have any information that they're not a forty-v pipper. I'm just saying, like a random unknown American is not necessarily a forty-v pepper on. Like, yeah. there's not that many forty-v pippers on ACR, at least not yeah. in like a six hundred dollars tournament.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. So the population read here is more important than the country read. It's
1: it's not that easy to get six hundred dollars on ACR. Like you, it takes you have to be pretty serious about poker to to get that kind of money on there.
2: I'll put it to you this way. I'm pretty serious about poker and I don't even want to play $60 tournaments on ACR (laughs) so much less. So this guy is probably crushing my soul. Uh, So with that being the case, I'm going to take a more theoretical approach here. And I think check for that reason, because uh, reasons for it is we should have a decent number of hands in our range that don't necessarily want to grow the pot out of position to two players. Also, our hand is not that vulnerable. Having top pair, top kicker with a with the nut flush blocker, and also because we're supposed to do a decent amount of checking here in theory, competent opponents aren't going to like pay off three streets anyway. Uh, with too many worse hands in this, and so my default approach here would be to check, but I will throw this out. If I think these players are just like, you know, $60 ignition Americans, calling station types, then I would just like throw a theory out of the window and just bet for value. But if I'm in a tougher game, I'm going to try to take a more what I think is a GTO approach. And you can tell me if that is right or wrong. Uh,
1: I can't actually, because I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, my my intention here was to to take a kind of theory driven approach. I'm not super sharp on the theory in multi-way pots. I mean, you can't do a lot of betting when you're out of position to to people. That's important. But I think this probably is one of the better times to bet. I think this is a pretty favorable flop for us in terms of um, we have a lot of nuttiness that other people don't have. Most people are going to three-bet kings. Most people are probably even going to three-bet tens aces ace king more likely to be in our range than anyone else's we know that no one else has the nut flush draw and we have the backdoor nuttiness there ace queen ace jack also like at least as much in our range as anyone else's queen jack suited. So like we have both like currently nutty hands and a lot of nutty draws in our in our range. And I think that means that we do get to do a fair bit of betting and that like other people are not that incentivized to bet if we check. So I think one good way of testing this is like if someone had king queen or king jack, do they have that much incentive to bet? I think the answer is is kind of no. They'd have to worry about us having checked a better hand and their hand doesn't really need that much protection with two broadway cards on the board like free cards are always a little dangerous i know i just said they don't need that much protection but like part of that is because they also can't really get called by that much that they're ahead of whereas i think with ace king where there is still dominated king X out there and there's a lot of a lot of broadway draws that both you and other people can have i think this this probably is a like one of our higher c-bet frequency spots
2: i mean are we really so here's the thing about the broadway draws the ones where it matter whether or not we bet don't have that many outs. So like ace, jack, ace, queen, like queen, jack, it doesn't really matter. Like we can't make the hand full. So we're not getting protection from queen, jack. I guess I'll, I'll I'll throw one of your questions to you. Is this a three street hand
1: on a blank turn? I think, yes. Uh, There's only so many blank turns, but there's, I mean, I I think even a seven, eight, nine, I mean, that feels a low gut shot, but I'm not, super worried about people having those those lower so i think it's just like on a, a non-broadway non-spade turn yeah i think we can bet again for value and if the river is also a brick i think we can chop for value
2: gotcha so i really i guess i struggle with how to identify a three street hand because basically what you just said is that there's a lot of bad turn cards but not all of them are bad let's say we get a safe turn card, there's still a lot of bad river cards, but not all of them are bad. So in my mind is like, in order for us to get three streets, it has to go brick, brick. And since there's like two streets where it's like, I don't know the exact number, I'm going to throw out half, maybe that's too much. Like half the turn cards are bad and half the river cards are bad. That means we're only going to get a clean run out like 25% of the time, I think. And so we're only going to be able to go get three streets like a quarter of the time that makes me think this is not a three street hand maybe i'm completely looking at that wrong way but i guess you know having the ace of space in your hand makes the spade less of a bad turn card so maybe you can still bet on spades
1: or at least not mind checking like checking them is, is fine even if i do end up checking it like that's it's not a problem the way it would be if i didn't have a spade
2: right so maybe like having the spade makes this more of a three street hand and not having the spade
1: yeah that's my thought i mean certainly right if, if i if i do backdoor the flush that's a three straight hand
2: right. i mean we're shallow right, right. enough
1: that like even after i check i could still get stacks in if i end up making the flush but um i i, so I, I don't think it's a mandatory like I, i'm sure it's a mix because most things are in, in this spot but i i think it's that that was why i bet anyway is i i think there are a lot of second best ants that can Call me and there's some interest in denying equity as well.
2: Yeah. So you're basically uh, refining this whole idea. And I remember exactly where I was when you opened my eyes to this idea (laughs) of that you're not supposed to be betting so often when you're out of position. And I basically just rounded it down down to zero and almost never bet if I'm trying to like think in theory. Um, But there are some bets and now you're just trying to refine like what those bets are and It's kind of a hard question to answer. Just for me, like hearing you talk about it, I think it's generally when you have a hand that's strong but vulnerable. And this doesn't really fit that definition to me. Maybe I'm wrong about that. So maybe there's like another description of hands you can bet when you're betting at a low frequency from out of position. Like besides the strong but vulnerable hands, what are the other hands you do want to bet in that scenario? Like how would you describe hands like this?
1: nutty and nutty drills gotcha gotcha and this is somewhere between nutty and shamba vulnerable like it's not quite as nutty as as really nutty hands but it's also a little bit more it's not super vulnerable but it's a little bit more vulnerable than the very nuttiest hands.
2: right so somewhere above like so your your division of like monsters and marginal is like Above, like the strongest marginal hands, and like down with like the the weakest monsters. So it's like in that range, and those are the sort of hands that, in addition to the, I guess that would be strong but vulnerable. The those are the hands that you want to bet here, even though this one doesn't feel that sh- that vulnerable to me. And then maybe stronger hands, like maybe pocket aces, you check those. Maybe I'm extrapolating too much there, but basically, I think I get what you're saying about you know these hands that are like nutty nutty value hands and also nutty draws. Like I can see how this has a little bit of both of those attributes.
1: Yeah, I think like king, queen, king, jack strike me as more the, like the king, x that I want to check where I'm not going to be in such good shape. Um, certainly, especially king, jack, even king, queen. Uh, there's not as many second best hands that, that can pay me off but like part of what I want to do when I do have Ace King I do want to deny people the opportunity to pot control when they have King Queen or King Jack uh, that's mm. like one of the biggest advantages of betting with with this or with pocket aces is not letting them pot control dominated Kings whereas once you don't have a king that beats all their Kings anymore then that's not a you know that's not a consideration
2: gotcha that makes sense to me
1: so I I bet small I bet quarter pot the middle position player who the person who cold called me initially uh, they call and then the button raises to
2: 5.5. 5. Um <laughs> not worried too much about the caller. Uh, when this other player raises, I'm a little bit concerned about you know, I'm blocking some of their primary bluffs, having the ace of space in my hand, but what value can they really have? Like they don't have kings or tens. I guess they have King 10 suited, maybe not off suit. It's hard for me to give them too many value hands I'm worried about, but it's also hard for me to give them too many bluffs besides like Queen Jack. So, yeah, I'm kind of torn. I'll put it to you this way because I'm torn. I feel like my hand is too strong to fold, too weak to raise. So I call.
1: That that's edifying to hear. I, I thought you were just gonna be like, oh, they're raising. I'm terrified. Just you know, that they always have it when they raise. You should definitely get out, which I'm sure is how you would respond if I hadn't primed you so much to to think in, in theoretical terms. Cause I definitely had the thought of like as soon as it happened, I had a stinking feeling in my stomach and I was like, Carlos would definitely fall.
2: <laughs> yeah, if this was a $60 tournament on ignition where I've kind of like pegged these players as passive, I'd definitely fall. I'm just trying to think in terms of theory because I'm assuming these players, although it's hard for me to see them because I'm not as good, I'm I'm assuming these people can find the appropriate number of bluffs to where your hand just has too much equity to fold. And I'm kind of like, I don't know how to feel about the ace of spades. Like uh, on on the one hand, it's like good to have that as a backup plan if we call here, but it's also like, uh, I'd rather them be raising, you know, ace of spades as opposed to like some of the stronger hands they could be raising. And I don't know how to uh, reconcile those two things.
1: Yeah. um, So the the bit of information that I didn't share with you because it makes me look even worse (laughs) is that uh, this person's, pre the razor, the button, their preflop stats were like, 11.9 or something. It was like quite nitty.
2: Okay, yeah. (laughs) Then I fold. But here's the other thing. Not only that, and and see, the 11.9 makes me want to fold, but also if this were like the ignition player with the 40% VPIP, I also want to fold because when that player does raise, they might as well be an (laughs) 11.9. Right. (laughs) And so part of what I kind of like was thinking, but I didn't want to speak too much about it, because i'm trying to think in theory think in terms of theory here is that when you raise and this first player calls i don't think the second player is supposed to be calling that often. so when they do call i'm going to use the whole like you know Salo costa thing of like um, if they you know use the base theorem like okay given that i've seen a call is this a person who's calling at the low appropriate frequency or is this probably a person who's calling too much? And it's more likely that this is a person who's calling too much. Even though we're in a tougher game where the average opponent is um, not as passive as I'm used to, the fact that this guys making a passive action in a spot where he's not supposed to have a lot of passive actions probably means he's a passive player. And if he's a passive player, then you want to be careful when he raises here.
1: Yeah, that's all I well said. Uh, I, I think I did the what I often call people out for the like half-assed hand reading where I was sort yeah. of like, Oh, what can he have? It's better than ace king. Like he didn't squeeze tens. Did he overcall with sixes? King 10. Like my equity is not even that terrible against King 10. Like I have, I mean, I don't want to yeah. get in it against King 10, but like that's not a nightmare the way a set is. So I, yeah, I just did the like, fuck it all in. Like, <laughs> and I, the other, the other sloppy thing that I did is, the which i know i call people out for all the time on the thing Booker daily is just giving a description of my own hand i'm like oh i have top pair top kicker and and the backdoor not flush draw like yeah. that's that still isn't like what part of his range is incentivizing incentivizing yeah. me to, to shove here i feel like i do like calling i mean i like shoving better than calling if i if i weren't going to fold which i think is the right choice because there is still that other person behind me who like yeah. pretty good chance they have a draw but yeah, I, I think it's just beautiful. I, I think this raise is just so strong. You know, as you said, we shouldn't be betting that we already raised out of the gun. Um, it's a pretty good looking flop for us. It's probably fairly scary, scary that we're betting into this many people. And then like the little raise is kind of suspicious. Like, even if in <laughs> theory it's it's correct, like most people don't actually know that. And if they like show, okay, they could have like Queen Jack or something. But the like raise to 5.5 is like, are they really like putting me on ace queen and then trying to raise me off of it? Or yeah, I just it, it was a it was a sloppy shot. I felt bad about it as I was doing it, and I did it anyway.
2: Talking about this out loud and then looking at, at the um, text that I've kind of been, like, typing myself is a lot harder for me than seeing hands visually. Mm-hmm. I think if I saw this go down visually, I would have picked up on that small raise size, and usually that's strength because, like you said, a lot of players, if they had, a vulnerable hand that we were in pretty good shape against that they wanted to go with, or if they had a draw, they might just jam. But when they make the small raise from a stack size, they could just jam. That's almost like begging for action. And they're not doing that with a hand worse than Ace scheme. Yeah. Uh, and sure enough,
1: he had the 10s. So that was that for the for the tournament for me.
2: Okay. So that right there, the 10s pre-flop, should he be flattened that or should he be squeezing that pre?
1: I'm pretty sure i would squeeze in his shoes but i don't know i mean at least in theory that's pretty strong action like an under the gun raised and an under the gun plus one call and he already has the button so Wait i minute. think
2: you you were under the gun plus one open and you got called by middle position
1: yeah sorry but still early position yeah early position yeah. action I, I think when he already has the button overcalling is not is not so bad for him
2: it's probably a mix uh
1: yeah it does sound like the sort of hand that would mix let's say yeah th- this has the the if i'm under the gun one low jack is supposed to have no calls at 20 big blinds effective but hijack is allowed to have some calls so i'll make this a hijack call and then button button squeezes 7.9 percent and calls 4.4.3 percent but tens is a is a pure it's actually with 20 big blinds would be a shove uh, even eights is shoving so you're right he, he is supposed to have about twice as many four bets uh, three bets as calls and this is not a hint that in theory should be calling but when I saw his stats I was not shocked that he had 10s
2: <laughs> right right so so that alone kind of confirms what I was saying earlier is that this guy shouldn't have that many flats here and so the fact that he does flat means that he's probably overly passive which means we should be careful when he decides to raise especially a small raise post-flop
1: yep uh, anything else you want to say about that one?
2: No, that was, that was a fun one. That was definitely a fun one. And I will say this, though. Probably what got you, is easy to get in that, like, you know, fucking them all in mode when you have around 20 bigs or less and you're already in the money and you're far from the final table.
0: That,
1: I like, was like,
2: SPR of two. I have top
1: pair, top kicker.
2: Yeah, this is probably not a mistake you would make with 30 left. And it's definitely not a mistake you would make with, you know, 10 to 20 from the money. But as soon as you get into the money and you're still far from the final table, that's when a lot of people, you know, have the fucking them all in reflex with, you know, decent looking hands.
1: Yeah, I I feel seen.
2: Yes. (laughs) That was was very insightful. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Uh, and thank you as well for like I said, I, I think the the initial agreement to um have, have Kim as the guest was uh or at least I was thinking of as an indulgence. Um, but I think she ended up being a fantastic guest. And I have no qualms saying that if you know if if you are a fan of the show and you like the kind of interviews that we do, you'll you will enjoy this interview. I think she she does a fantastic job. And there's a lot of interesting conversation around debate and um some specific issues that maybe people of color in, in debate face or people with certain economic um you know, because that is like for a lot of these students, as I mentioned, you know, there there is a big disparity between them and people they might be competing against outside of the league. And that was one of the things I was most interested to talk to her about because it was a thing that was often on my mind when I was running the league, was like, so we had our own little internal thing of um you know, with just within the, the Boston public schools, those there's already, you know, there's there's stratification there already, but they're on a su- somewhat level playing field against each other versus if I took them out into the wider debate world uh, to events that were hosted in more like ritzier suburban public schools or you know, private schools and that kind of thing, competing against those students, no matter how welcoming people, and you know, people were extremely welcoming and they waived fees for us and you know they were trying to be supportive, but I was still kind of like, how is this going to be a positive experience for the students? And um, I was very curious to hear how how she thought about that kind of thing. So there's a lot of interesting tidbits like that in there. And uh, I hope that you will enjoy this interview with Kimberly Willingham, the executive director of my baby, the Boston Debate League. Kim Willingham, thank you so much for agreeing to do
3: this. You're welcome. Glad to be here.
1: Um, so I guess the first question is how how did you end up here? Like, how did you end up being the the director of the Boston Debate League? If if I recall correctly, you you were not a competitive debater yourself.
3: That is correct. So I'm trying to decide do I give you the long version or the short version? Oh, we got an hour.
1: Give us the long version.
3: <laughs> so I'm an educator, a lifelong educator. I started my career as a teacher in New Orleans, um, Louisiana, I taught there for a few years, and then I came to Boston for graduate school was supposed to be here one year and it has now been nearly 30. Um, So um, during this time, I've been working in education, either in the nonprofit sector or uh, doing consulting work for public schools around the country, largely around special education. And so I had been working um, in a school actually, right before coming to the Boston debate league, I had been a school leader. Um, I didn't start out with that. I, I started out interviewing for something like a dean of school culture or something. And the person who was going to be the principal said, oh, I think we can groom you. I think I can make you my AP. And I thought, great, okay, let's try something new. So did that. And then midway through the year... He ended up stepping down and it was tag, you're it. And I became uh, an assistant or co-principal. Was not anticipating that at all. It was a level five school, meaning the state had taken it over and there there were a lot of needs there. So it was a really demanding school year. And at the time I had two kids and um, they were young, nine and 15. And too often I was saying, hey, um, to my 15 year old, can you warm up dinner? Or I have a pizza on the way. And I was paying someone to come feed my nine-year-old and take him to school every morning. And I had always been a really involved parent. And that year, my son said, this is the worst year of my life. And I thought, "Okay, I've got to do something else because my first calling is to my kids. So um, at the end of the school year, um, I stepped down and thought, what am I going to do? And thought I'd kind of live off of savings for three months or so. And then went on idealist like many people do thinking, "Okay, I'm going to just see what's out there for the future and then saw this job. At the BDL, and it was for an instructional coach. And I thought, wow, you know, this would allow me to stay in public education and to do what I really wanted to do as a school leader, and that was provide professional development and training for teachers. And so I applied. There were already, oh, actually, I wasn't even going to apply. A friend of mine had years ago asked me to make a donation to the BDL, didn't really even know the organization, but a friend was a coach, a debate coach, asked me to make a donation. And I did. And so when this position came up, I said, hey, called her up. Is this the organization that you asked me to write a donation for? And she said, it is. You won't believe this. I was in a meeting yesterday and they were talking about looking for a coach and you came to mind. I'm going to call them. I'm like, no, 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 don't call. Don't call. Don't call. I'm not ready. And she said, no, I'm going to call. And she hung up on me and she called. Um, (laughs) And the next thing I know, I was in interviews. I was a finalist. I was actually leaving the country that same weekend. And I remember saying to Steve, who was the executive director at the time, you know, if you're going to offer me a job, you need to do it like by Friday night. I'm leaving the country. And he called me Friday evening and said, hey, we want to offer you this job. And I thought, oh, okay, I have a job. <laughs> so much for three months off. And so I've been with the organization now for eight years. And two years ago, I was named executive director. So that's the journey to me being at the Boston Debate League.
1: What a power move. I'm leaving the country Offer <laughs> me a job. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any like... Preconceptions about about debate. I mean, was there a debate team at your school? Did you know people who had who debated, or was the whole thing brand new to you?
3: It was all pretty much brand new. The closest I came to debate um, in high school, I took a speech class. That was it. Um, we didn't have a debate team to my knowledge. Um, I went to a really, really large high school in Detroit. Shout out to the motor city, that's where I'm from. But no debate team. I didn't I don't remember debate, you know, in high school. The only thing that I can really say I knew was Denzel Washington's movie, The Great Debate. The Great oh, Debate. Oh yeah,
1: um, not not a very good movie, really, but fantastic <laughs> for for debate purposes.
3: So apart from that, you know, I didn't know much about debate other than you know presidential debates and things like that. But in terms of an academic, you know, after school program, I didn't have any experience at all with it. And for me, it was just it was education, and the mission was compelling, and I just thought. Well, you know, this is aligned with work that I've been doing in the out-of-school-time programming sector, and um, it just, again, like I said, gave me an opportunity to keep my finger on the pulse of education, to work directly with teachers, and then have a a life that uh, would still be in the best interest of my family.
1: My hope, uh, given the presidential debates were your exposure to debate, is that... uh, (laughs) You were pleasantly surprised when you saw what uh, competitive academic debate looked like.
3: Well, you know, young people always blow me away. I'm always inspired by them. So uh, I'd rather watch young people debate than I would watch adults debate on stage for uh, elections. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. And I think just I remember going to early debates when I started and just really being floored and thinking, wow, I wish I had had this when I was a young person. I remember one debate in particular, it was a middle school tournament. And just to see how seriously the kids took it. I remember there was this young man who came dressed for the occasion. And by that, I mean, he had on blue jeans, but they were jeans that had been ironed and cuffed. He had on a vest. He had on a button-down long sleeve shirt with a bow tie. And he had a pocket watch on a chain. And through the round, he would check his time on his pocket watch. And I just remember thinking, this guy's pretty cool. But not only was he cool, they were engaged in discourse on things that adults aren't talking about. And so I'm always surprised and then not surprised. So surprised because you know I've been at it long enough to just know that these young people are our future and so um they they inspire me every time I go to a tournament
1: I was just saying to someone the other day that I was better informed about the world when I was a 16 or 17 year old which is when I was at my most competitive in debate than I am now like by by a factor of 10 probably I mean I I knew everything that was going on and now I have I mean I have a vague idea but I I was really deep into like all the major issues of, of the day when I was 16 or 17.
3: Yeah, that's one of the gifts of, of debate. I mean, I think one, there's the resolution, but then there are all the cases that students are running, you know, all the things that they're talking about within a particular resolution. So we just had a four week summer camp. It was the first time we'd ever had a four week camp. Uh, we just ended it a couple of weeks ago. And this year, the resolution. Of, uh, is around wealth distribution, and you know the, the topic or the question that students grapple with over that four weeks is what is economic justice. To hear middle school and high school students talking about that, trying to define that for themselves, but talking about things like social social security, talking about baby bonds, talking about um, what is you know that racial wealth gap um, income things like that, I'm just like, wow, okay, you know, so they are definitely aware of what's going on in the world and the world around them, and they're really thinking about their place, and so I think debate really. Opens you know doors and windows for them to think about the future and think about um, what matters to them. So it is pretty impressive.
1: And just to you know give our our listeners a little bit of context, can can you talk about like the difference between what so what we've been talking about so far has been like the competitive uh, you know two teams debating against each other sort of thing. So if you, if you can tell people a little bit of what that looks like, but also what the debate in the in the classroom which is i my understanding is a huge component of what the Boston debate league does now is teaching teachers to use debate in the in the classrooms
3: sure so in a policy debate round typically there are five people in a room uh, two teams two students arguing the affirmative side of a resolution two students arguing the negative side and the fifth person that might be in that room is a judge who is uh, adjudicating or listening to the round and then providing feedback and determining who won the round. If a student goes maverick, meaning he or she is debating alone, then you know there's one less person in the room. And so students get a resolution at the beginning of the school year. Uh, it's decided on at the national level. And then students will argue about that resolution all year long, but they'll look at you know, different parts of a resolution. So for instance, this year, this school year, the resolution is resolved. The United States federal government should substantially increase fiscal redistribution in the U.S. by adopting a federal jobs guarantee, expanding Social Security, and or providing a basic income. So throughout the year, students will look at different elements of that particular resolution. And so, you know, we will have debate tournaments throughout the year. The season starts in about October, November. Uh, we'll have four tournaments for middle school, four for high school. And those go on all day long on the weekend. We usually do Friday evenings and then all day Saturday. And at a tournament, we will have two to three hundred students there and anywhere from fifty to seventy five judges who sit in the rounds and, you know, determine who wins. What's really cool is that students, don't know when they go into a round if they're arguing on the affirmative or the negative side. So they have to be prepared, they have to be well versed, they have to have researched all sides of an argument, and then they compete. And then the next round they'll be arguing on the other side, the opposing side. So that happens throughout the day. We usually, you know, provide breakfast and lunch for students. If we're there late, we'll provide dinner. We train judges so you don't have to have a background in debate to be a judge. We just want you to come and be as impartial as you can be. We ask that you you are compassionate. These are young people who are learning. And so judges play a critical role because they help them to continue to strengthen their arguments and and just generally have an interest in, in young people. So we do that all year long. And then Can I just
1: emphasize one thing in there before you move on? Oh, um more. I I don't I think a lot of people listening might not appreciate uh the significance of some of those numbers that you put out there. Uh so you kind of very casually said like two or three hundred students will show up at these <laughs> tournaments. That is an extraordinary number. I mean, at the time that I left the league, we were lucky if we had maybe 40 students show up at a, at a competition. And I mean, I think there are very few debate competitions anywhere in the country that are drawing numbers like that. Uh, and the ones that are, are like flagship, you know, like the national championships gets gets big numbers, or there are certain um, tournaments like Harvard hosts debate tournament, like those will, will draw big numbers, but, you know, to just have a sort of local league that's pulling in those kinds of numbers, I, I'd be surprised if, if there's, you know, you've got to be in the top five of, you know, of any any local league anywhere in, in the country that's getting numbers like that.
3: Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for calling it out. You're you're right. <laughs> um, you know, we work with about 40, close to 40 schools each year. And so there are teams at each of those schools, and a lot of them are robust. And by robust, we, you know, determine this team is robust if they have a returning coach and if they have at least 15 students who are engaged, um, you know, in at least 20 hours or more of programming a year. And so we are really striving that. We don't just have one or two students uh, um, you know, on a team, but that the team is really thriving, that they're learning together, that they're growing together. And so... You know, we have a program team that supports coaches. So coaches for your listeners are typically teachers, Uh, teachers who say, I'm going to give of this time because this thing matters to me. These young people matter to me. This, this activity matters. And so a coach um, might be partnered with another coach or one of our alums who will coach uh, coach students on a weekly basis. So they practice every single week, about an hour to two, depending on, you know, what's going on, what time of year, who the coach is, where they are. And they will practice and prepare for these tournaments. And so when you get to a tournament, I mean, talk about energy. Can you imagine two to 300 middle schoolers <laughs> at a tournament site. And we start off with like, you know, rounding them all up. Uh, our our program manager who runs the middle school team, Rainier, he gets them really hyped. They have this chant, you know, when I say Boston, you say debate. And so they just get really live. They're, they're really excited to be there. One of the things that I will say about BDL that I think is really special and unique Sometimes you'll see some of these articles that talk about toxicity in the debate space and how it's competitive. And one of the things that we're really trying to do is create community. And I think, you know, when we talk about the end of the year and we look at the data that comes back from our surveys and we interview students people talk about the wonderful feeling of community they have. They talk about, yeah, I was competing, but I see that person over there that I'm competing against as a friend, or I'm invested in that person, or, you know, it's rigorous, but I also feel supported. And it's not just about winning, but they really do see themselves as part of a community. So when you come to a tournament, there's energy. People aren't kind of segregated by school or or by team. And I'm not going to talk to you as none of that business. They really are. It's a joyful experience. I and mean, that's not to say that there are not sometimes some tears or sadness of a person or a team loses around. But for the most part, I think we do a really good job of uh, promoting skill acquisition and community over this is cutthroat and you got to win. So the energy is really palpable. It's really exciting. Um, there's a buzz in the room and, and it, there's just the the fun of seeing kids right deeply invested in something on the weekend in particular right because this is an academic Activity um, And, and they're then they're giving we- up
1: their whole weekend. I mean, right, like you said, right. it's, it's Friday, like immediately after school, they go straight from school That's to right. these competitions. They're there yeah. until what, like 10 o'clock at night on Friday or something. I mean, it yeah, goes kind of late.
3: Sometimes eight o'clock, you know, they might get there at three 30 and they're there until eight or nine okay. you know if you're in varsity and then they get up and they're back at all day the, Saturday, yeah, Saturday, they get there by usually eight o'clock and they might be there until 8 PM Saturday night. And so, you know, that one, they stay after school, but then give up their weekends to be here It says a whole lot about them, their drive, their commitment, their interest. And, you know, for me, you know, when I was saying they blow me away, part of it is there's a narrative out there about young people, particularly young people from urban communities, young people who've been marginalized, young people of color that paints them in all kinds of ways other than, you know, smart, other than committed, other than just scholars. And so these young people come and and reshift or retell who they are, they, they shape the narrative. And so they're, they are the evidence that they have something to say, that they're capable, that they're smart. They're also just dedicated to come out and, and out there in the winter, you know, it's they, they're excited to be there. And so we're always excited to have them. So that's the tournament season. And then we offer um, two other programs. One is called Resolved. We piloted this program in 2021. And it's for Black and Latino young men. And we created this program because we found that the numbers of Black and Latino young men in policy debate were going down. They were declining. Probably fewer than 40 percent of our debaters are Black and Latino young men. And so we thought there are some barriers here. Something's getting in the way. And what can we do to engage them And discourse and to help them to acquire the same skills that they would through debate. And so we created this program that kind of gets at the skills of debate in a very different type of way. So over the course of the year, these young men come together a couple times a week with facilitators from our team who are also uh, men of color. And they talk about- that
1: Josh matter. Nixon is one of these people, right? He's, he's been a guest on the show before. Yep,
3: Josh Nixon is one of them and Ranner August. Um, and then uh, this year we're bringing on a bilingual program and Douglas Matute will be leading that one. But they come together and they surface the things that matter to them, the things that they see in their community. They determine what they want to talk about. They determine what they want to study. And so they'll do you know some inquiry into those topics over the course of the year. And then at the end of the year, they will write an argument, if you will. They will develop, um, you know, maybe a TED talk style conversation or some type of advocacy action that they want to take. But they've decided this is what matters to me. I'm going to study and then I'm going to write about it. And so they're doing all the things that they would do in a debate. They're doing the research, they're questioning, they're building public speaking skills, but they've done that through affinity community building. They've done that in a very, um, I guess I won't say less rigorous because it's rigor there for sure, but in a, a maybe in an environment that feels more affirming because it's all led by men of color. We have guests come in and talk to them about their lived experiences, about the topics they're exploring. So it, it you know, it creates an environment that's safe where they can be vulnerable, where they'll take risk, And it and it's not steeped in competition, but it's just steeped in community. So that's our second program. And then the third program, the one that I actually started in when I came to the BDL, is called Debate-Inspired Classrooms. When I joined the organization, it was called EBA or Evidence-Based Argumentation. And through that program, we go into schools, we partner with schools, and we coach teachers on how to bring debate into the classroom. We know not every student is going to be on a debate team. So we want all students though, to get the skills of debate. And so we go into classrooms, coach teachers on how to bring in activities that will help students to work together collaboratively, to build arguments together, to engage in discourse, um, and to do all the things that they would in debate, research, questioning, building arguments, using claim, evidence, sound reasoning. And so we've developed a suite of activities that will help teachers to foster discourse and voice in the classroom. So that's our third program. And so it looks very different. You know, It's not that every teacher every day is doing a full fledged debate. You can't do that. We understand that, right? There's a scope and sequence. Teachers have a lot of things they have to cover, but we have broken down debates into segments and help teachers to do some activities that would get at the skills of debate. So for instance, let's say a teacher has students reading a text. We might do an activity called an evidence sort where the teacher provides a claim about something in the text, and then students are going to sort pieces of evidence from that text and determine if they're relevant or irrelevant to support the claim, or uh, there might be a scavenger hunt. The teacher might provide a claim, and then students are racing to find evidence in the text to support that claim. So those are the types of activities that teachers might do in a debate-inspired classroom.
1: So it's easy to imagine, you know, like a social studies teacher, some teaching history and you know, plenty of plenty of debates in history. Carlos used to be a math teacher. What what could a math teacher debate about in their classroom?
3: Oh, you know, this is so cool. Um, So we have a person on our team, on our debate-inspired classrooms team, whose name is Carlos, and he was a <laughs> physics teacher. <laughs> so it's pretty cool. Um, So here's the thing. Often we would hear people say, oh, yeah, this is going to work in English. This is going to work in history. There's no way. This can happen in my classroom. And we say, not so. So a couple of things about the STEM field, particularly math, often, at least when I went to school, you got a problem, you solved the problem, you gave it to the teacher, it was right or wrong. But there was not a whole lot of talk about how'd you get there? You know, How do you know that is right? And so what this does is it allows students to be able to articulate what they know and how they know it to be true. And so it also allows students to hear from other students, their thinking and how they arrived at something, because just because there's an answer doesn't mean that we all have to get to it in the same way. And so students engage as they would in an English class or a history class with debate. So we offer a week-long course for teachers called grad class. And during that time is when we're really introducing this instructional approach and we kick it off with a debate a math debate. Every year we do this and we do that to kind of quiet the naysayers who say, oh, this can't happen in our class. So the debate that we developed is called the GOAT and teachers using standard deviation and all these stats have to argue which player was the greatest NBA player of all times. So they get all this data and then they have a debate about which player was the greatest player of all times, but they have to use the evidence that's been provided, all the data that's been provided. So that's one example of a math debate. Um, Another activity that we do in math is called the interview, where a student might solve a problem and his or her partner would interview them about that problem so it's not a debate so much but they're building an argument telling how they solve the problem and then they're having this dialogue back and forth how did you get to that problem how did you know that was right did you run into any challenges when doing the problem so you know it's not so much debate in the way that we think of policy debate I'm competing against you but it really is engaging in discourse and determining how we think about things and being able to articulate that.
2: Yeah, I would think in math, there's like so many ways to solve the same problem. So one way you can use it is to have a debate to decide which of those ways is best for that group.
3: Exactly. And that's one of the things that we'll see sometimes in math classrooms or sometimes if a student has solved a problem incorrectly, as opposed to just, you know, oh, it's wrong what's the, what's the mistake, you know, arguing about what the mistake is, uncovering what the mistake is. So there's a lot to do to unpack, you know, a student's thinking. So it's not just, you got to get this right, or you got this wrong, but let's talk about it. Let's be in conversation about it.
2: Yeah. The other thing that struck me that that came to mind was when you mentioned that you work with middle school kids. And like when Andrew talked about the numbers, like that strikes me as a lot of like people who are just kind of get kind of getting to know themselves and mm-hmm. they kind of get into um, conflicts more so than I would say high school students or even like the smaller kids would be uh, would do and because I used to be a middle middle school teacher and I know that you know one thing regardless of the subject matter of the class, if they if debate can help with conflict resolution, that's going to be great for any, any uh, subject that a teacher can be working with.
3: Absolutely. In fact, um, during the summer, as I mentioned, we have this course for teachers. And on the almost the last day, the, the Thursday before the class ends, we always have what we call student voice day. And we have a group of uh, students, a panel of students come and talk to teachers about what makes for an engaging classroom, what makes um, them want to participate and use their voices powerfully in classrooms. What what moves teachers can make, and then the teachers get to ask them questions. And I remember last year, one of the students talked about, you know, because they were using debate inspired debate, debate inspired instruction in the classroom, that that carries over onto the playground. And so when you learn how to argue in the classroom and you know kind of not snap but really consider other people's perspectives and 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 listen to what people are saying then they take that out beyond the classroom and so you're absolutely right it allows students to to disagree better, to, to listen to one another. And, um, I think you're right at that middle school age in particular. Um, it is, I taught sixth grade. So I remember that all too well, (laughs) the dynamics. Um, but it does allow them to, to consider other perspectives and not be so ready to pop off if you will. (laughs) Right.
1: That was something that always was like a little bit of a a chip on my shoulder with the way that uh, urban debate leagues, especially were covered in um, like mainstream media, which I mean, for the most part, I was just grateful to have any kind of mainstream media, like if the Boston Globe or or someone, you know, did a piece, but they, they really like to use the phrase students learning to settle arguments with words instead of fists or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, as you've just discussed, like there is, there is something to that, but I guess it made me uncomfortable the extent to which it played into some of the negative stereotypes that you were talking about earlier. Because I think for many of these students, it's not as if they were going to be, you know, fighting if they weren't in debate.
3: Right, right. No, I agree with you wholeheartedly. That, that's one of the things that I love about the work that we do. One, because these are students who have chosen to be in this space. They have, you know, decided I want to be a debater, and and as you mentioned. Because we know that they've chosen this, they're probably kids who are, you know, going to resolve conflict well in the first place. They're, you know, they're not involved in anything um, concerning necessarily, but also this broad stroke that sometimes painting of kids in urban communities, I think, is really dangerous and is diminishing. And it would suggest that they don't know how to resolve conflict and that they needed debate <laughs> to. Come save the day. And I don't think it's that at all. I think for the for some students, it does create an opportunity that they might not have otherwise had. It helps them discover gifts and talents perhaps they didn't know that they had. And I think they can still have an edge. You know, they go into an argument. It's, it's funny to, to watch them sometimes go back and forth with one another and then take that to the classroom and do that with teachers and even parents. But I don't think it's because. You know, they had to have this thing come in to teach them how to be civil. I, d- I do think, though, what it does do is lets them know that they have a voice. They can use their voices powerfully and that they can speak up in places where they might have thought that they couldn't, where they might have been silenced traditionally. So they can go into, you know, a school committee hearing and speak up. They can and and, and they can respond to things that are that can be negative or that, might be even harmful to them they can say something about it so you know if someone has a negative view on them they can they can respond and so it's not so much about teaching them not to respond with this but it's giving them the confidence to know I have something to say and I'm going to say it
1: the resolution that you mentioned for this upcoming year dealing with uh financial redistribution or economic redistribution and, and economic justice uh, my guess is that like a fair number of the students and like the debate community or the the bdl community in particular uh is is, has an opinion on that subject that they're they're bringing into the debate and but you know students are half the time they're going to have to debate on the the negative um how do you think about preparing students for i mean is it the case that they're going to have to argue something that they don't believe or how do you um how do you prepare them for that
3: you know, it's interesting. We've had a conversation as a staff, as a team in recent years about dissenting voices and how do we, one, uh, make room for dissenting voices when when people or evidence packets that we might, you know, pull, for instance, might come from sources that are counter to our own beliefs. And so, you know, we, we've, you know, honestly, we struggle with how do we not so much prepare students for that but what do we shield them from is it our job to shield them um you know i think we mostly believe that they should know what's out there they should know the opinions that are out there because you're better equipped then to respond um and you are better able to protect yourself if you know how people think about you or if they think about things that are counter to your own and honestly the point of debate is not just so much about winning but it might sway your your thinking you might come to consider other points of view um so i think that while students will argue both the af and the negative we when we build the cases we're not ever going to you know because we are committed to uh, racial and social equity because we are really culturally responsive and thinking about the young people we're say we're not going to ever have them argue something that's going to harm them or that is going to have them emotionally, I won't say emotionally charged because I think any debate topic could potentially do that. But I mean, it's not going to ever disparage them. So we will build cases that perhaps, you know, there can be two sides to um, and they might feel strongly about one, but we're not going to ever have them arguing things that just would tear them down. So I think that we're really intentional in, in how we build cases it doesn't mean that they won't come across evidence or writers, for instance, who might say something that's offensive or that bothers them. And certainly as students get to varsity, when they're you know writing their own cases, they might come up with all kinds of things. Um, and so I think it's really as I said, we seek to affirm students and we're really careful with judges. We tell them in the training, you know, if you have a position, put that in a box, basically lock it up uh, during this round and listen, you're arguing, um, you're listening to these arguments and you're not deciding this based on your own personal beliefs. And, you know, we really caution judges about how they view students. And so, we seek to to build them up and not tear them down so i think we we do a lot to build community and to make sure that people feel safe in the rounds
1: yeah the um the the main thing that i used to tell I, I, maybe now you're getting more qualified judges, but um, we, I shouldn't even say qualified, but more experienced judges. But you know, we had a lot of people who were you know, people's parents or you know, bus drivers in some cases. If, if we were really desperate for teachers, or sorry, for uh, for judges, and the advice that I gave them was, you know, there's really no way. There, the only way that you could evaluate a debate wrongly is if you didn't evaluate it based on things that the student said. Other than that, it's their job to convince you. So by definition, like if if you're not convinced, you're not convinced. You know, like that's kind of on them to adapt to their audience as long as you give them that chance. But Mm -hmm. so the only way that you could really go wrong is if you came in with an idea of just like, nope, I believe this and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to bring my own opinions into how I evaluate this round.
3: That's right. That's right. You know, it's interesting last year, um, I was leading judge training one day and, um, as the person leading judge training, you typically stay in the, what we call the judge lounge. And we're just there to answer questions for judges as they complete their ballots, particularly for people who are doing it for the first time. And I was so heartened by a mother and son who were there judging. They were adults. Clearly the mother was, but anyway, um, they came (laughs) up to me afterwards and they, they said, I have to tell you something. I'm like, okay, what? And they said, we came in here, you know, with a set of opinions about this topic. We heard the argument and we shifted. And I'm like, really? And they Mm said, yeah. And so I just appreciated that they were transparent enough. I mean, to say, I thought this before hearing these students debate. And after hearing them, I'm walking away with a new perspective. And that's powerful and young people did that. And I just think about the power of that. If more people were willing to listen, right, to actually hear what's being said, to consider it, that we might have a lot more civility in our world. So to see that young people had that power was really amazing.
1: Yeah, you know, I I fully agree with, with that sentiment, but it's also something that I feel like I've I've changed the way I think about that certainly since like my own time as a debate because I I was arguably one of the I don't think I was like the most toxic example but you you referenced earlier (laughs) people maybe having who don't know a lot about debate having a a kind of having only been exposed to like toxic views of it and I think one of those toxic views is a sort of nihilism of just like you can just argue anything and it doesn't really matter what you (laughs) believe if you're like a good enough debater I I think I sometimes even took it as a challenge to sort of like take a deliberately bad or offensive argument and like win a debate with it anyway to prove Mm -hmm. like what a good debater I was,
0: <laughs> um,
1: and but I did kind of have this ethic of like, well, you know, everything is up for debate, and like if you're right, then you'll just win the debate, and and that's that. And um, I think particularly since the 2016 election uh, and some issues uh, that have arisen in the country since then, I do kind of wonder to what extent, like, we're giving credence to certain ideas by agreeing to have a debate about them, like. Maybe there are certain things that were just like, this This is just a settled topic and we don't need to keep debating it anymore. Uh, so like slavery comes to mind. Is like, I don't think we need to continue to have debates about like whether or not we should have slavery. like I think that's just like a settled issue it's not an issue that that needs to be and uh, fortunately right now I don't think we have a lot of people who are trying to debate exactly that issue but there are a number of other issues like child labor for instance that I I thought were settled issues and apparently they're not and apparently people are still you know thinking of those as debatable
3: with regard to slavery though there are people who are trying to say we shouldn't teach that history so that's pretty close to me
1: (laughs) yeah or, or I mean if I guess even you know like with um uh, imprisoned people, right, or yeah, people yeah. in their the criminal justice system. So I mean, yeah, I, I think I think there's there's maybe still a broad agreement that like slavery is bad, and uh, some disagreements about what exactly constitutes slavery. But I, I I mean I do feel like we've we've backslid on things that I thought were more settled, um, mm. and and I don't know if that was that I was just wrong that they were settled issues, or if that they have become less settled as a result of I, I would say malicious forces like trying to reopen a debate around them.
3: Yeah, no, I agree with you. I I don't disagree with that.
1: Um, yeah, I I feel like that's been one of the biggest things that's changed in in uh, my own my own thinking around a bit.
3: No, I would I'd, I'd like to believe that there are some things that are settled and we don't need to debate them, but I feel like we are having to. And you know, I personally, for myself as a black woman. I, I opt out, right? If, if, if I don't want to, I'm not going to. If it's going to cause me harm or emotional distress, I'm not going to engage just for the sake of arguing. And quite frankly, I believe there are some people who, no matter what position I take, no matter what I share, they don't care. They, they enter into a conversation and, and, and do not care about what I have to say. So I'm not suggesting by any stretch of the imagination that we can convince all people. I'm simply saying within our debate space, um, it is refreshing (laughs) when a judge comes in and says, I thought this way, I was open to this. And I think there is power in that, but I also believe that there's something um, to self-preservation and not engaging with people who, you know, have ill intent from the beginning, who have no desire at all to be changed, whose hearts are like stone. So I'm not interested in having conversations with those people. And quite frankly, if I felt like our debaters were in spaces like that or up or in front of judges like that, we would have to intervene. I, I'm not looking to harm uh, students, particularly like I said, those students who've already been marginalized, who have already been silenced in a lot of spaces and who people have already written off. I'm not going to, you know, stand by and let them have to endure that type of space because I don't think it's necessary and it's not edifying at all
2: you know, it, to me it's similar to what you said about the middle school students where anyone that joins, that shows any interest in debate is probably not someone who would uh, resort to violence to uh, re- resolve conflict. And and then here, if you're looking for judges to do, uh, to looking for people to judge a debate, I doubt you would get people that are that cold-hearted or, or um, refusing to listen to the arguments, even like, you know, being interested in, in being in that space.
3: You know, certainly those people exist (laughs) and I'm sure some of them have judged maybe at the Mm. BDL, maybe elsewhere. I don't know. But I do feel like we get a good group of judges that come out. I think that, you know, just like we talked about the students giving up their whole day. You're a special kind of person if you decide (laughs) you want to be in the presence of middle and high school students all day long just to torture them or just, to, you know, just to be closed minded. So I think, you know, people sign up knowing we are a nonprofit organization. They sign up knowing our mission. We have an amazing senior volunteer manager, Kelly Cody, who sends out all kinds of materials about who we are as an organization, about what's expected of you. As a judge, Um, we do a training on the day of, we also provide asynchronous training. So they get it over and over and over again. And that's steeped in our mission, it's steeped in our vision, it's steeped in our values as an organization. And so people know who we are and what they're signing up for when they come to judge a BDL tournament.
1: So How do you think about when you're taking students outside of the bus in Debate League? Like, like I, I think you have now, I mean, for me, it was literally it was a handful of students, but I think you now have like a fair number of students who are competing at competitions where they are just kind of, they could be judged by anyone. And and in, in some of these, competi- like if they go to a competition uh, hosted by like a local university or something, often they do have hired judges. And so they're, I mean, they're still not there to torture the students per se, but you know they are getting paid to, to be there and they are sometimes judging somewhat under duress or, or schools will have a requirement that they have to bring a certain number of judges. Mm-hmm. Um, So, you know, when you don't have that kind of control over the environment, I think it's also the case that those tend to be largely white spaces. Mm -hmm. uh, And and the Boston Debate League, uh, my understanding, is is not largely white. Um, How how do you think about, like, bringing students into those spaces and and preparing them to to debate in those spaces?
3: I think it's having conversations with them before they go. You know, we have a wonderful team um, who's deeply passionate and... Uh, concerned about the young people. And so Roger Nix often, um, he's been with the organization now for eight years. He was a, a high school teacher himself. Um, he often supports our travel team and students that are competing uh, regionally. And so I think they know, one, that there is safety in who they came with, right? That doesn't control for the environment once there but they know that they're going to be affirmed. People are going to help them to think about their arguments before they go in and prepare them for what they might experience. You know, we do have an alum, Mosey Burke, who, you know, was on the travel circuit and he works with debaters and really tells them what to expect. And then I think it's debriefing when the experience is over, coming out of it, talking about it. What did you learn? And and that's one of the things that I think is really important, not just what happened in that moment, but what did you learn? What did you learn to prepare you for the next moment? What did you learn that will make your next argument better? So I think clearly we can't shield and protect students when they go into those spaces, but I think we do a we we try to do a good job of, of being there to support them before they go into it, prepare them as best we can, and then help them to make meaning of the experience after they have it. And then we took some students to Dallas this year for uh, the National Urban League competition. And one of the things that I said to the students before they went in, I was like, have fun. <laughs> that that's what matters to me. Have fun, enjoy what you're doing. Hey, you're in Texas. You got to go on a little trip. Have fun and learn, right? Take notes. Um, and and when they weren't competing, you know, when they were out of the rounds, go sit in another round. Take some notes. What can you learn from the students who are going on to the final rounds? So I think you know that's the the best we can hope for that we're going to support them and that they learn from the experience. So you know, doesn't mean it always feels good, but I think also it's preparation for the world. The world doesn't always feel good. People, as we talked about, don't always share their opinions and views that we have. And, and sometimes they say things that we don't agree with. And so uh, this is a bit of a training ground, if you will.
1: Yeah. And, and this is, uh, I'm sure, one of the many places where it's useful to have non-white people on the staff, or even you know, in, in your case, in, in the most senior leadership role. And and you are, I believe, the first... Uh, I mean, so. I believe you're the fourth executive director of the league and the first non-white uh, executive director. And that's not to disparage any of us who came before you. Hopefully we all <laughs> did a good job. But I mean, there are just certain things like, I mean, cause that was something that I really struggled with was taking students outside of the the Boston debate league and like how to prepare them for that. And even like some of the things that you're saying now, they sound common sense in, in retrospect, but they weren't like the debriefing afterwards, it just wasn't the sort of thing that I had the wherewithal to recognize, oh, that could be important. That could be, that could mm-hmm. be valuable. That could make the experience more, more positive for them or more affirming for them. And you know, even at that time, they still had, you know, black coaches and, and, you know, their, their friends within the league and, and whatnot. Yeah. I think it's just like, there, there are certain things that uh, being a person of color, you're going to be able to bring to the table that uh, a white person just doesn't.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. I am the first uh, black person, first person of color to lead the organization. I'm the first woman to lead the organization. Um, So I think that that matters. Um, I think it's important for young people to see leaders of color in positions of leadership and power, um, because I think it shows them that it's possible. And it's also affirming. And, you know, as a whole, as an organization, we've adopted some values that I think we live by, you know, Uh, racial and social equity is one of them and diversity and inclusion is another one. And those are not just buzzwords. We're not just putting them on the website or putting them on a piece of paper, but we really are living by them and we hold those values up as we do our work. Uh, We also have an equity statement and so, you know, it kind of speaks to who who it is that we're serving and so how do we live by these things and so as we're developing programming, we develop programming alongside those statements of purpose uh, that tell us who we are and what we believe in and, if we find, you know, that is not lining up, then we need to ask ourselves some questions. Um, should we be doing this? But um, I think that that absolutely matters that, you know, we have these values, that we have this mission statement, uh, this this equity statement that says who we are um, and how we're going to go about doing business. And quite frankly, for me, I'm not going to, I, I don't want to be doing anything that's going to ever harm or exploit students or make them feel less than. And so, um, you know, it's deeply personal for me as a Black woman. Um, It's deeply personal for me as a person who lives in the same community where a lot of our students live. And for someone who went to public school herself, who sent her kids through public school, like all of that matters to me. And I bring all of that lived experience into my role as executive director of the organization. And I very much think about the students that we serve as we make decisions. So I definitely think it's felt in the organization um, and, and our organization is pretty diverse. You know, We have three people on staff now who are alums of the BDL, um, Black men, um, and a Latino man, we have um, uh, our volunteer manager, senior volunteer manager is a former debater, so she knows that space. And then the rest of us are former educators. So I think that that all brings a certain level of compassion, a certain level of empathy, a certain level of understanding. Doesn't mean we've got it all figured out. We don't. We're human, right? We're, <laughs> we're growing. We're learning every day. But I do think that we are very reflective in our practice as a group. And we really think about the work that we're doing and the implications for everything we do.
1: The former educator thing, I think, is really important also um, because I you know, we were joking before, not even really joking, but you know, about the kind of toxic perceptions of like the academic or competitive debate culture at large. And I I do think it gets a little unfairly represented or it's a one-sided representation of it. But I mean, there there is truth to that my initial vision for the Boston debate league was that it should be debate the way teachers would build it rather than debate the way debaters would build it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a lot of what is, it contributes to the, the, what is toxic about the like mainstream debate culture is it is, you know, a lot of the coaches were very competitive debaters themselves who essentially just like never grew up. (laughs) They're just like, (laughs) okay, well, some of them go on to become, you know, lawyers or whatever else and you know they're not coaching those those people don't have time to coach debate the people who coach debate become you know they're like grad students uh in communications or whatever assistant professors in communications and then their their main job is like coaching a, a debate team and and so like that or that's at the college level but that sort of trickles down a lot of college students are involved in, in coaching high school debate um and, and so like at least at, at the National or the very competitive level, it is debate the like a kind of incestuous, just like the way people who are really rabid about debate like decided to build a debate in in a way that was like what they liked or what they were interested mm-hmm. in, and that's I mean I got plenty out of out of doing like I think there is a lot of education there, but it's not what like education is not the number one goal there they're like the the main thing they're looking for is not like how how can this be a positive experience for students and especially like in the Boston debate league i don't know your numbers but like i'm guessing a lot of your students are not going on to debate in in college so the goal is not really like train people to become elite college de- debaters well let me just ask you, you know what what is the goal like what would you say you're you're looking for students to get out of the experience of competing in the Boston debate league
3: yeah, no, you're you were spot on. We are really about helping young people to develop transformational skills. And we have a whole list of what those skills are. But essentially, we want to prepare young people for college, for career and engagement with the world. We want them to be able to use the skills that they've learned in debate, whether it's through resolved, whether it's through debate-inspired classrooms, whether it's through after school policy debate. How can you take those skills that you've learned and apply them in your life? So when you go on a job, you know, how can you? how can you use those skills when you are in your community? How can you use those skills? And so I would say that that is the number one goal that we're helping to prepare young people for the world and recognizing that they have voices and that they can use them powerfully. And so, you know, it becomes a tool for advocacy. It becomes a tool for activism. It becomes a tool for for career and workforce readiness and development. Debate is I think, I think it's fair to say, we would all say this, we see debate as a vehicle. It is a tool, right? It is, it is a means to learn these skills. It's a way to learn. It is something else that, something else that young people can say they have become proficient at, right? But it's not because I'm going to be some champion debater now. That doesn't mean that there aren't some who might not be, you know, there might be some who are champion debaters. In fact, you know, we send students to camp. This summer, we sent a few students to Dartmouth. And so some of them are going on to these national camps because they want to learn. They want to strengthen their skills. They want to compete at varsity varsity level. And we want to provide every support we can for those students who want to compete at that level. But we also recognize that the vast majority of our students are new to debate and they are, are learning the skill and they might not do this beyond high school. And so for us, we really want to think about how do we meet those students who are just new to it, who are at the lower levels of competition, how do we help grow them and grow their skills, but not with this eye toward because you're going to win, because you're going to go on to Harvard, because you're going to do X, Y, Z, but really you're learning in this process. And so, you know, To the point that you made about debate the way a teacher would teach it, I think that's exactly what we're doing. I think that's who we have at the table in terms of our staff. I think there is a way in which we do things that is informed by the fact that we're, you know, we're so educator heavy in our organization and we really care about the experience that students are having both in the classroom and in the after school space. In fact, our debate practices probably look very different from when you started the league. So we develop a curriculum we and we use debate-inspired teaching approaches for after school pr- um, practices. And so they're doing debate-inspired activities to unpack the cases, to unpack the resolutions, to come to understand the content. So it really is about how can we help you to be learners. We see ourselves as a learning organization, both for ourselves ourselves as staff but also for students.
1: Yeah, you know the, the very first question that I asked you of you know, how did you come to be doing this because like not having a, a debate background yourself. I, I like that we've kind of come full circle to that where you know I I think probably you're you're more qualified to to be doing this as a result of having a background uh, as, as a classroom teacher rather than as, as a debater. But this really is a novel thing, or maybe not novel now, but like in the early days of urban debate leagues, like the very first ones that were started in, I guess, like the 90s. I mean, it was it was mostly people who were prominent in the college debate world. They were they were given grants to start and, and run these organizations, and many of them disappeared as soon as those grants ran out because they were, they were debate coaches first. And so, you know, they had very good debaters. They produced teams who were competitive at like the national competitions and things. Um, But they, didn't really have a lot of wherewithal as, as educators or as executives. I mean, ultimately, you're a chief executive also, right? Like you're you're running a small business. And um, that was not something that they were particularly equipped to do either. Uh, I mean, I'm saying they, but like I was one of those people also, which is why like we ended up hiring a, a different person eventually to take over the organization as, as it was getting larger. But yeah, I think it's like it, it's telling that a debate background is actually you're know, not really a requirement for for your job or not even necessarily a plus.
3: Yeah. Let me tell you, like I said, the young people inspire and impress me and I could not keep up. I've tried to judge rounds. It's a hot mess. Um, (laughs) I know what my gifts and strengths are and judging around is not one of them, particularly at the varsity level. I wouldn't even try to go sitting there because they are going a mile a minute. And I'm like, what the k? what the critique, what? Um, so I know the lingo, but I, I, I can't do it now. But, um, I do think that we have talented people on the staff who know debate really well, and so everybody plays their lane, everybody plays their part, and so, you know, I bring my education background and I trust the people on my team who have a lot more experience with debate to bring that. And and the other thing that we do, you know, I mentioned we're a learning organization, one of the things that I really appreciate is we really do seek to learn alongside one another. So every year for the last few years, we have been taking the resolution for the year and the um, after-school debate program team will walk the rest of us through it. They'll lead a learning session where they'll talk about the resolution and they do that in all kinds of ways. Sometimes they, it's hands-on, they'll have us you know, do some activity. Sometimes they'll show us a video, but they, I think we all in the organization really seek to learn what we're teaching. And so um, while I might not be able to debate about the things that students are debating about, I can certainly learn about them. And so it's really fascinating. And, you know, quite honestly, you know, one of my major jobs as the ED is to raise funds. And so it helps me to be able to do that when I can tell the compelling story of who we are and what we're doing. And, you know, quite frankly, while I might not be in a policy debate round, certainly I'm debating all the time when I'm asking people, I'm making an argument all the time when I'm asking people to support the organization. So I have to make a case, right? I'm making a claim about who we are and what we're doing. And then I'm providing all the evidence to support that claim. And so it helps me if I'm knowledgeable about what students are going to be talking about over the course of the year. And so I think we do a really good job of that as a team, really getting to know uh, the resolution for the year and really getting to know the cases that students will run. So I think we pride ourselves on all wanting to learn from each other, from the students. It's not harder than ask that of students when we're willing to model that and do it as well.
1: Um, one of the things, uh, there's many things that, that uh, I'm impressed about, um, but one of them that, that impresses me most, and I believe this was like, just as you were coming into the role of, of executive director, and was kind of at, at the peak of the COVID pandemic, you took an entire season online, you know, where where Mm -hmm. debate still had, because I mean, I was, I was among the many heartbreaks in, in 2021 was seeing that the city championships were canceled. You know, and, and understanding what that meant for students, many of whom, as we said, were not going to go on to compete in college. And so like, that was going to be the capstone for students who had taken this thing very seriously, some of them since middle school, mm-hmm. you know, like that, that was going to be the culmination of, you know, this thing that they've been doing for maybe as many as seven years. And, um, it, it still makes me sad to think about it, you know, that, that, uh, they didn't get to do that and that, that they mm-hmm. missed out on, on that experience. Um, and so I, I was so happy to see that you were able for, for the following school year, um, the, I guess the twenty twenty to 22 school year, that you were able to run an entire debate season online. It also worked out nicely for me because it meant that I could volunteer (laughs) remotely and and judge some (laughs) debates, which was fun. But can you talk a little bit about how you managed to pull that off?
3: Yeah. Well, one, we were nimble. We pivoted. um, And and part of it was because we thought, well, one, we don't want to just shut our doors because we're inside. And as you mentioned, This means so much to so many people, to students, to coaches, even to families who supported their young people. And so we thought, what can we do? And so we we did research on various platforms and we offered the season online. And I have to tell you, it helped with connection, right? We were all isolated. We were at home. We were lonely. We were looking at the same four walls, unless you walk from the living room to the dining room or the kitchen. For the most part, we were not connecting to one another. And so this was an opportunity for people to get online and to connect. And in the beginning, we had some hiccups. We had to figure out, you know, does this platform work and how are we going to do this? But just like we have students giving up their days on Saturdays. I wouldn't even say giving up their days. They're investing in themselves. Yes. In and I would say the judges are investing in them as well. So just as we have them investing in themselves on, you know, in-person tournaments, they did that during, you know, virtual tournaments. And what was really amazing was at the end of the year, we we typically have award ceremonies and there's usually a senior speaker and an eighth grade speaker. And in that year, both speakers talked about the isolation they had been feeling, but debate helped them to not feel so isolated. They look forward to getting online to practice. They look forward to those tournaments. And they talked about it really being a bomb at at a really dark time for so many of us. They talked about feeling like they were still part of something. They were still part of community. So while, you know, there were some challenges to it, of course, you know, there was great power in bringing people together through technology to do something that they love. So it was a remarkable year. And we didn't not only do that for, we didn't only do that for debate, we did that for debate inspired classrooms, because teachers still had to teach. Mm. And so many teachers were trying to figure out what, how do you do this online in schools, because it all happened so quickly, schools were not even able to provide you know adequate professional development and support for teachers so we decided hey we're going to get online we're going to turn this into an online space for learning and we offer professional development from the spring of 2020 throughout the entire next school year and we had teachers getting on and saying thank you we didn't know what to do i didn't know how i could still have students engaged in discourse remotely and we we took every activity that we've ever built and turned it into an online Um, Option, And so we figured out how you can do a full class debate on zoom we figured out how you can do a scavenger hunt on zoom we figured out how you can do a class challenge and each session that we led for teachers, we would demonstrate one of our activities using a real text or using a real math problem. we might look at a graph or we might look at an image and they might argue you know the best title for an image or we would take you know a Jamaica Kincaid uh, reading and 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 do an evidence sort around that but we we brought teachers together and they also talked about feeling a sense of community, feeling connected and quite frankly it was, addressing burnout. A lot of teachers were feeling like, I don't know what to do. I'm tired. I'm over this. And we were bringing teachers together to talk about their practice still to be in community with other educators. And so, you know, when I talked about us being a learning organization, I think that was yet another um, piece of evidence to support that claim that, (laughs) that we are willing to learn and that we're willing to try new things. And so that year was powerful learning for us because not only did we provide that For teachers and for debaters and coaches, but we learned some things about ourselves as a team, we learned some things about ourselves as an organization, and one of those is that we're responsive and that we want to be here to support the communities that we're committed to serving as teachers, as debaters, as coaches, Um, and so we felt really good about that.
1: Yeah, that was definitely my experience uh, volunteering. You know, I I appreciate the opportunity at any time that I can you know, reconnect with the the BDL community, but particularly during that time, uh, it was really inspiring to see. To, I mean, just to see the the energy of the students in general, but to see how much everyone was coming together to make this work. Mm-hmm. You know, where and and you know, kind of being tolerant of each other's um, technological hiccups and and accommodating them and and just everyone kind of having the recognition of like, okay, this is tricky to pull off and we're going to have to like feel our way through it, but it's important to all of us. And so let's like cooperate and and figure out how to do it together. That was really nice thing to be a part of. Um, but the other thing that, that you all organized on top of everything that you already mentioned was, you know, you had a few, I, I forget what exactly you were calling them, but they were essentially like seminars where you were bringing, I think this is maybe something that you usually do in person, but you were bringing in people who were familiar. I, I remember there was a particularly impactful one around um, people who have been impacted by the criminal justice system, but mm-hmm. I think you had a, you had a whole series of these mm-hmm. um, and, and that was great to, to be able to participate in. Uh, I know that you had an event around George Floyd's killing and the, um, and, and the Black Lives Matter um, movement, and that was, uh, yeah, was just that there, there was so much that you did during that time to to cultivate that community, you know, around around debate.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we started um, a race equity policy uh, series, and you know, part of it was um, how how are we engaging in discourse, right? How are we engaging in discourse, not just from a debate standpoint. But how are we helping the community to have conversations? How are we leading conversations? And we had debaters facilitate some of those conversations. We had local community leaders participate in those conversations and You know, what's also interesting is out of that, our students, our debaters were asked to moderate mayoral forums. When we had a mayoral race, um, there were two forums that debaters took part in because somebody had attended one of those uh, series and thought, hey, you got young people, you know, doing some great things. We want to be involved. The other thing that came out of that, somebody reached out to us from the Nashville Street Jail and said, can you work with us? So, actually, for the last two years, we have led a, a, a class at the Nashville Street Jail, a debate inspired classrooms type class, where the uh, pre trial uh, men who are pre trial detainees determined something that they wanted to talk about. They researched it over a course of four weeks and then they had a debate. And that was really some of the most powerful work that we've done in my time at the organization. I got to go in and witness this debate. We had said to um, the people at the jail, we can probably work with 10 people. You know, They had about 40 or 50 men sign up and say, <laughs> I want to do this. And we were like, whoa, uh, we're not ready for that. You know, We had Josh <laughs> and Vernier were the two um, people on our staff who led that initiative. And what ended up happening at last year's debate, I, I got to go and there were probably about 10 men who were there at the jail debating against two of our alums. Like that's how excited they were. And then they had an audience of probably 30 more men who, you know, they said, well, you can't all debate, but you can be in the room. And it was powerful. And it was powerful because some of these men, you know, might've had tough experiences in school. They might not have ever seen themselves as scholars. They might not have known that they had this in them. In fact, you know, you see these men that people might assume are so tough because they're incarcerated, but the reality is they're human beings and they were vulnerable. And they said, I'm afraid I can't do this. I don't know about this. And by the end, that debate was incredible. And and when they left, like during the b- debate, it was like, there were, oh yeah, come on, man. Come on, you got this. They were <laughs> trying to get up and give each other, you know, words to say. And people were like, no, you got to sit down. You're not on the team. You can't do that. But they were so hyped <laughs> up and they said, thank you so much. You got to come back. So that came out of that race equity policy series, um, you know, that the jail reached out to us and said, can you do something? And so, you know, it was really powerful to be able to, you know, lead dialogue in a space like that, in a space where people have written these men off, have said you don't have anything to contribute. And here they were. And and I'll tell you, in that first year, the topic that they wanted to um, argue about was about whether rap music should be used in trials. And so there's a, I think it's called the rap bill in New York City. Um, and so, um, you know, sometimes if sometimes when people commit crimes or allegedly commit crimes, um, people will go search their social media and see what they're listening to or what kind of pictures they've taken. And so of course you get that you you could be biased. And so these men were arguing about whether or not, you know, rap music should be brought into trials or not. It was fascinating, but here it was something that was relevant to them, kind of like our resolve program. What matters to you? right you're going to be passionate about the thing that matters to you if somebody gives you a forum to talk about those things so Um, that was some of the work that came out of our online programming. And so it's really allowed us to grow as an organization. You know, one of the things I often say is we're much more than debate. For years, we were known for a policy debate. And sometimes people hear policy debate and think, oh, that's nice, but is it necessary. Oh, that's a nice little niche after school thing. But we're doing so much more than that. We are doing that. And then some, we are helping young people to use policy debate, but we're also helping to further discourse and dialogue beyond an after-school competitive arena. So it's, you know, it's it, we've evolved a lot since you started the organization and I'm really <laughs> proud of that. And I think each ED before me is proud of that as well. So it's it's been good.
2: Extraordinary.
1: Uh, is Is there anything else that either of you were hoping to talk about that we haven't gotten around to?
2: No, I just want to say that it is so awesome to see Andrew's baby grow up into <laughs> such a, an amazing organization. And Kim, you are a powerhouse. At a, I would say probably the per- perfect person to lead it. And it's like, I'm just listening to you and just thinking about like, you know, Andrew's trying to like, you know, with some, uh, this tells you how unhandy I am. Uh, duct tape. <laughs> duct tape. <laughs> he was trying to put this stuff together with duct tape in the beginning. And, and, and now it's just an amazing organization. So this was a great conversation to uh, be a part of.
3: Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, you know, one of the things that I've said is if, if there were no Andrew, there would be no me, right? In this organization. And uh, each person, each leader has come in and brought something and each leader um, contributes something. And so this is my moment to bring something to the organization. And I'm proud to lead this organization. I inherited the organization um, in, in a good place. We're in a sound place financially. We're in a sound place in terms of the health and vibrancy of the staff and the work that we do. And I just really, you know, it's rare that people get to say they love their job. But I really say it and I mean it. And I think people know it. They hear it in my voice. But um, I'm just I, I'm just so um, moved by the people, the young people we serve. I'm moved by what I think they're capable of and what they will do. And I really do, you know, our vision statement says that all young people in Boston are engaged in critical discourse, informed by evidence and empowered to lead. And I really do believe that we are engaging young people in critical discourse, that they are informed, right they're not just spouting off at the mouth but they really have done some research they know what they're talking about and I watch them and know that they are empowered to lead whether it's you know we've had debaters who've been on the school committee we've had debaters who have led walkouts who have led um press conferences who have been a part of campaigns who have done uh during the you know pandemic we had young one woman Who was really concerned about the state of black women and policy um, and and implications for policy for black women. She started, she did a forum called Let's Talk About Black Women. And there were over a hundred people there. There were artists there, there were speakers there. She asked us, could we help her? And we really offered a a little bit of support, but she ran with it. And so we know that there is power in what we're doing and that these young people are incredibly gifted and talented. So it's a gift for me to be doing this work. You know, I didn't expect to be here. I, I think I told I'm not, I think, I know I told the executive director, Steve, at the time when he hired me, I'm going to be here about two years. I got other stuff to do. <laughs> and here it is eight years later, and I'm the executive director, but I love it. I love what I do. I feel proud of it. And that's a gift to be able to wake up and say, I like what I do and I feel good about it. And I feel good about the people I work alongside. So thank you um, for, for letting me talk about the organization and for your listeners who want to hear more about the organization or learn more, they can go to bostondebate.org on our website. We have some, great videos, lots of videos of alums talking about the difference debate debate has made in their lives. We have volunteers, some coaches on there. There are some videos of me, there are blogs about the work we're doing throughout the year, but it's a place where people can go and hear for themselves because, you know, sometimes people think, oh, of course the executive director is going to say all those <laughs> boring things, but They can hear directly from the people who are part of our community about how amazing the organization is. And of course, if anybody wants to support our work, there's a button where people can give to. So I I couldn't get off of here without saying that. So I I wouldn't want you to. (laughs) We welcome support of, of our young people. And as I said before, it's investing in them and it's investing in our future. And quite frankly, I think our democracy needs what our young people are doing and what they have to offer. So if you're interested, um, you can give to the BDL and support support our future.
1: Well, th- I mean, I, I would want to thank you anyway, just because you're doing a good thing for, for the community and the world. And as you say, for our, for our democracy. So even if I had no personal connection to it, I, I would feel grateful to you. But I feel particularly grateful to you because, uh, you know, when I chose i guess to to you know, focus on on poker rather than right It was supposed to be the other way around like like when i started the league <laughs> poker was kind of how i was making ends meet until running the boston debate league could be a full-time job and i was kind of like my my dream was to have the job that you now have uh, when i was doing it it was not really a, a job um, it was it was not full-time and it was not paid and, and it, right when it got to the point where it could be was when we ended up hiring someone else to to do it. And I mean, I was going to leave one way or the other, even if we hadn't found someone as, as qualified as Steve to take over. And the thing that I told myself was, well, you're not really the best person to run. I mean, you started it because someone needed to, but like you're not actually the best person to run this organization. So like find someone who's better equipped to do it. And then, you know, like, but part of me was wondering, well, am I just like telling myself a comforting lie so that I can go do this other more selfish thing? And so it is very good to see that it panned out in a way that you know we now have someone as, as um talented as, as as you who has taken it and just absolutely run with it and is doing so many extraordinary things that I never even could have imagined. So uh thank you very much for that.
3: Thank you. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me on the podcast. it has been fun. Yes, likewise. Take care. All right, you Tell too. Bye-bye. Bye, Carlos. Okay, bye. bye.
0: Or the devotion of a car, my light of the fair passage of a bill, and who will sign us into law. I know you won't.